Good morning. Good to see everybody here for worship this morning. Really glad you come to worship. Um, let's pray together. I'm dealing with a little bit of a cold, and so I apologize if it's distracting or difficult to hear me. So try to project. And so let's let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for your presence already. We've done that, but Lord, we do. We're grateful, Lord, that to come here to worship you, Lord, to come and to learn more about you, not so that we could just be consuming more and more and for the sake of ourselves, but Lord, that you would instruct us on how to live. Lord, help us to get a hold of what you have to say to us today through the Bible, because if we can get a hold of what the Bible has to say, Lord, we can really understand how life really works. And so, God, I pray you'd give us uh, uh, clarity. I pray against anything that would distract us, Lord, right now in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd protect our time together, just opening our, we ask that you'd open our minds, our hearts, that we just give you the freedom right now to, to work in us and challenge us and to speak to us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in a new message series. This continuing on this message series called The Movement, where we're looking at the expansion of the church, how the church began and how it's been moving out and what God is doing through the church. Um, we looked last week at uh, the first two chapters of the book of Acts, and there's a, there is a bookmark. I'm not sure if it's in your bulletin this week, but it should be on the back table. If you'd like to read along with just kind of what we're looking at, Kind of each, there's some daily or weekly readings you can do through the book of Acts. And I'm going to be hitting on the high points of, of what, what is covered in that book. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. It really traces the growth, expansion of the early church. And so, a question for you. Of the thousands of people crucified by the Romans, uh, we probably know only two of them. Um, who's, who's one that we all probably know, we gather together to worship, you know, Jesus. Anybody know the other one? Kind of famous? There's a a few, I guess, that have been crucified that we know of. How about Spartacus? Anybody know the story of Spartacus? Spartacus was, um, yeah, you may not have seen the movie, but there is, maybe some of your grandparents have the movie, and on VHS, you can go and watch it. And, uh, but Spartacus led a slave rebellion and the Romans crucified Spartacus along with other rebels who rebelled against Rome. And they lined these crucified rebels along a highway as a warning. Don't rebel against Rome. Don't rise up, band together and rebel against Rome. And the Roman historians um, have written about the life of Spartacus. You know, they wrote about his life, talked about what he did. And the story is slanted towards Rome so that Rome looks good and you see how he rebelled and all that. But the big question is, how is it that any of us know about Jesus? That's the real mystery. Why is it that we know the story, the name of Jesus? Why is it that a Jewish carpenter who lived in kind of the armpit of the Roman Empire is even known? Why is that? How is it that we know his story? The Romans didn't write about Jesus. The Jewish historians didn't write about him. They wrote about his followers, but they didn't write about him. So how is it that we know so much about his life? We actually have four accounts of his life in the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament write about his life. You probably know more about Jesus than you do any Roman emperor. And and big question is, why is that? How is it that this story continues to, to be passed on? It's such a widespread story. Did you know that? One-third of the earth's population believe that Jesus is God and that 
he's con- you know, he is God himself. And I mean, that's, that's astounding. How is it that we know this story? We look at the biblical explanations. Historians look at natural things, but we look at the biblical explanations. And the Bible gives us in the Gospels eyewitness accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are gospel accounts from eyewitnesses. All the writers, some eyewitnesses, some were associates of eyewitnesses, and they're just writing this careful account of what happened in Jesus' life. Luke was one of those uh, associates of Paul. So he wrote about what he learned through Paul and his friendship with Paul. He wrote about stories of Jesus' life and what he collected. He was very careful, even writes about how he took, you know, he paid careful attention to the details. He wrote those out. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So the book that we're reading is written by Luke, who was a doctor, an associate of Paul. And the book of Acts tells the story of the early church, how the church grew, how it, how it really blew up. And so we're looking at this. And last week we talked about how after two months, about two months after Christ's resurrection, the followers of Jesus, which is the disciples, his family, and about a hundred other followers were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they went out into the town. Well, actually, they were empowered, and Holy Spirit empowered them to be able to speak about God, and it, it, the church exploded that day. 3,000 people embraced the message that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. He paid the penalty for their sins, and that hope for life is found in his resurrection. So there was this giant you know, movement from the very beginning. And Luke tells us that the church got started on that very first day when 3,000 people um, responded and embraced the message of Jesus. It wasn't something that was ancient history hundreds of years before. It had just happened about less than two months ago for them. And it wasn't far away. It was only maybe 100 yards from where they were standing because ancient Jerusalem was really a small place. And so this was like, this was right there. They knew the story. This was not some mysterious event. And so we were looking about last week how the church was born as a movement. Just a quick review. The church began as a movement, not a location. It was intended to be this gathering congregation of people who were on the move, reaching out, focused on reaching people outside. There wasn't buildings. There wasn't banners and Bibles like we have. It was really a group of people who banded together and believed that something supernatural had happened in their midst. They believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so the reason Christianity survived the first century was because that small band of early followers took the movement forward. That's why we're here. They took the movement forward. And their mission was to spread the good news of Jesus, to spread the message that he died to pay the penalty of our sins. He was risen. That gives us hope for a new life. And it was a very outsider-focused movement. It wasn't about the people in the church forming a little group that protected and only dealt with insider issues, but it was about going out. It was about the outsiders. And does anybody remember the term that, that he said, you will be my what? Witnesses. He said, you'll be my witnesses, which a witness is someone who's accurately retelling what they've seen or what they've heard. And so that's the job of the, the church. Be my witnesses. Spread this message. But you know what happened over time to the church? The church over time got buildings the church got organized, which organization is not a bad thing. But over time, the church subtly got off track. And before long, this outward-focused movement became something all about the inside, all about the insiders. It turned inward. And this is a dangerous drift, one that we as a church today have to pay attention to. 
we have to watch that we don't drift away from this outward-focused movement that is to spread out, to reach out. So the natural drift of every church is to move from focusing on the outside to focusing on the inside. This is the pull. It's a gravitational pull on every single local church to move back to just those on the inside. When we were starting this church about four years ago, it's easy to focus on the outside because there was nothing on the inside, really. It was so tiny, and to survive, we need to get the message out. We need to share Christ. We need to connect with people and share Christ and connect with more people and share Christ and, and help people learn how to grow and follow him. You know, it would be easy at a certain point for us just to say, well, there's a group of people that comes to worship. Let's just focus here. Let's just, just focus on taking people deeper, and that's it. Let's make it all about the inside. Let's form little groups where we do see insider things. And we, have, we wear our own T-shirts and... You know, we drive Christian cars, and I don't think there's that, but bumper stickers at least, you know. And, but sometimes, subtly, church can become all centered around church people. Church is for the church people, isn't it? That's, that's what happens. Church is about the church people. I have an illustration to, that, that when I think about this idea. When I was growing up, there was a church softball league in my city for all the churches and the church people to play in. It was different from the city rec leagues, the men's leagues. And when I was 16, I was so excited. I got to play in the men's church league. You know, in the church league, there was no cussing, no trash talking, no arguing, no fighting, you know, no taunting. But we secretly had ringers that we brought in from the outside. We disguised them as church people. Act like church people. Don't cuss. Don't fight, you know. But hit home runs, because that's why you're here. And so we had these guys that were able to just blast the ball further than any of the rest of us. And they were just our home run hitters. And, uh, you know, I fully expected at some point they would show their true colors. And someone was, they're not church people. But they never did. They just hit home runs for us. They played undercover. We had our head deacon get thrown out more often than anyone else. Because you'd argue with the plate umpire on the call strikes. But why is it that we isolate ourselves from the outside? I'm not on a campaign against church rec sports. Okay, I'm not anti-church rec sports. But when you read the group or the book of Acts, what you see is this was a group who was so outsider focused. That was their mission. Reaching out, reaching out. People took care of each other. There was all these different cultures that had come together. Very different backgrounds, languages, all this different cultures. And the rallying point for the first group of Christians was not the language they spoke or the color of their skin or, or, but it was really, or their backgrounds, it was really, they believed that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God. He was the Messiah, the savior of the world. He rose from the dead. And if you believe that, great. They were like, that's great. You believe that, great. Great, you'd be part of this movement. If you don't believe that, we want to help you understand what this means. We would love for you to, to decide to choose to follow and embrace the message of Jesus. The first century church did not see the unbelieving world as the enemy. They didn't see the outsiders as that's the enemy. We need to separate from them. But our church is not immune to this drift. Churches today subtly begin to focus inward. One of the ways we know if we're drifting our focus is is through our prayers. Our prayers are indicators of our focus. Our prayers are like tattletales. 
they tell what we're really focused about. How we pray will indicate whether or not we've shifted from the outside to those on the inside. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, we're going to read the first prayer that the early church prayed, the very first recorded prayer of the early church. And if you're already a, a follower of Christ, you would consider yourself a Christian, then I want to talk to you. If you're not, you're off the hook for this portion. But if, if you've decided to follow Christ, then I want to talk to you about your prayers, my prayers. We're going to look at their prayer, but I first like to talk about our prayers. Here's what we typically pray for as Christians. We typically pray pretty much for ourselves, if you think about it. Typically, you know, we pray for ourselves. And we pray for our family. And we might pray for two or three sick people. But for the most part, some of our prayers can be very, very self-focused, self-centered. And some of our prayers, to be quite honest, can be somewhat absurd. And I'll speak really personally here. As I thought about my prayers and some of the prayers that I pray or have prayed, um, which God hears them, but some of them, you know, some of them can be pretty absurd. And I'm not suggesting that you stop praying what you always pray for, because we all probably have some things we always pray for. I'm not saying stop praying that. Stop praying those things. But many of those things that we pray for probably do not at all tax God's energy. When I go on trips, God, please give me a safe trip. And I can imagine God's not up in, you know, he's not in heaven. You know, oh man, got to gear up for this one. Got to get him from here to here. And I know I'm kind of joking, but, or, you know, God, help me pass this test. God's not thinking, man, I haven't really brushed up on calculus. You're on your own, you know. He's, he's probably not taxed by most of our prayers. When we think of some of what fills our prayers, and, and we see how routine and ritualistic and how sometimes selfish they become, I wonder if God's thinking, I know you're thankful for your day. You told me that. In fact, you told me that last three years straight, every day. God, I thank you for my day. Why don't you ask me for something important? Why don't you ask me for something challenging? Why don't you ask me for something outside yourself? Now, again, I'm not saying God doesn't want us to pray about what we pray for. But I, I would imagine he would want us to you know, try me, ask me for something bigger. But the thing that most of us have in common is that all of our prayers tend to be focused on us. In fact, if God answered all of our prayers over the last year, who would be better off? We would. We would be much better off. We'd be wealthier. We'd have better jobs. We'd drive nicer cars. We'd be straight-A students. We'd be graduated already. We'd be married. We'd be healthy. We'd be better off. And again, the teaching on prayer is very clear. God wants us to present our requests to God. Philippians 4, 6, present your requests to God in everything. Give, you know, give thanks, prayers and petitions to God. Jesus t- taught, we read about it in Matthew 6, Matthew 7, both those chapters are teaching on prayer. He wants us to pray, but my concern is that self-centered prayers all together, when you get us all together, start acting like self-centered Christians. And the early church prayed a very different type of prayer that we're going to read. Over time, we become an insider-focused group And we lose sight of why we even exist. What is this church all about? What are we gathering for? As you'll see in the prayer of the early church, bold prayers seek to build God's kingdom, not ours. That's one mark of the early church's prayer. And a bold prayer is, it's it's about building up God's kingdom. It's an outside-focused prayer. It's not just about 
answering all of our requests alone. This morning, just the point of this is I want to challenge us to pray bolder prayers, to pray bolder prayers. See, as the movement continued to grow, remember, 3,000 people joined the church on day one. Exploded. The church birthed with this move of God. 3,000 people joined. A few days later, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. The temple was the epicenter of ancient Judaism. They're going to the temple to pray. And as they're entering the temple, we're told that there is a crippled man there. The Bible word for crippled is lame. And I know that means something really different for us today. If someone's lame, you're not saying they're crippled. And so, but for the Bible term, that's what they said. He was lame. It just meant he couldn't walk. He couldn't walk. And he was born this way. So there's this crippled man. He's begging for money. And they see him holding out his hands. And they say, you know, we don't have any money. But what we do have, you know, they say, we want you to get up and walk. And so Peter says this, I have no silver, no gold, but what I do have. I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. An amazing thing happens. He does. He's crippled from birth. He stands up and he follows them into the temple. He's walking. Peter and John, they heal this man. This is an amazing thing, Acts chapter 3. And suddenly, there's another stir. Now, remember last week you talked about they were speaking all these different languages. And there was a stir. Now, another stir happens. There's all this stir now in the temple. And all these people are wondering what's going on. And then they see this man walking and they knew exactly who he was because he was the beggar at the, at the entrance of the temple. There's this stir and there's this commotion. And Peter, he sees this gathering of people and he just can't help himself. He's like, I've got to preach another sermon. So Peter gets up and he preaches the sermon. And right in the middle of the sermon, he decides to bring up the word that he just can't stay away from, which is the word resurrection. He says, Jesus was resurrected, and he talks about the resurrection. And by the end of the message, up walks the religious people, the religious leaders, the Jewish priests, the captain of the temple. And they're all annoyed, and they're thinking, oh, here we go again, this guy and this group. They won't shut up about Jesus. They just won't stop talking about Jesus and how he's resurrected. And so they put Peter and John, who had just you know, healed this crippled man, they put him in custody until the next day. It's getting dark. And so they put him in custody until the next day. And... The verses in Acts says that in Acts four it says that all these people responded. At this point, more and more people responded, and now the church, the number of men, was five thousand. So just again, this thing's blowing up. It's getting bigger. People are responding to the message. At that point, about ten percent of Jerusalem had turned their attention to this movement and embraced Jesus. This stirred up the city, and so Peter and John get arrested about the resurrection. They're preaching about the resurrection. They just get arrested and they're taken away. And the rest of the church, all the other disciples, Jesus' family, the rest of the church, most likely they're afraid that they're never going to see Peter and John again. They're afraid these guys are dead men because just two months before, Jesus had been crucified by the Romans. The Jewish leaders were all involved in that and they're thinking, there's no way we're going to see them again. This isn't going to end well. So the next day, Peter and John, they stand trial before the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. And they start asking Peter and John about the story that they're sharing. And Peter says something to the effect of, I'm really glad you asked. And he launches again into the story of Jesus and against the story of the resurrection. And he's just preaching, again, the message of faith and salvation. But at the very end, he concludes his sermon with this verse, Acts 4.12. He says, and there is salvation. Now, here's the big point. 
There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when he said that, this really ticked off the Jewish leaders. This really, really got under their skin. Now, that's, that's a pretty narrow-minded message, Peter. There's no other name by which men can be saved. It's not a PC message. He just got out of jail for preaching this message, and he can't keep quiet. He can't be quiet. He, and he's pleading with them. Embrace Jesus. He's the only way to salvation. He's just pleading with these people. And again, this was getting under their skin. But the problem was they really couldn't do anything to Peter and John because the guy who was healed was still standing right there. Look at the next verse. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they'd been with Jesus. Verse 14 says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. Remember, this was only his second day standing. He's, the man's thinking, you know, yesterday I was not a stander. Yesterday afternoon, I'm a stander. And I'm still standing. And I've been standing. And I'm right here. He's walking around. He's in the temple. You know, he's, he's at the trial. He's still standing. He's standing beside them. And because of that, it says they had nothing to say in opposition. So they say to Peter and John, okay, listen up, guys. We're going to let you go. We're going to let you go. But we're not, you know, we're telling you, we're warning you. Do not talk about Jesus. Don't come in here with this ridiculous teaching. Quit spreading the message of the resurrection. And Peter looks right at the leaders and he says, you got to do what you got to do. We've got to do what we've got to do. And they leave and they continue to spread the message. They take off through the streets. I want to show you a brief video. Real brief video, just highlighting the, the pressure and the tension that was that these followers, these early followers, were always under. This was not a safe environment for the early church. So take a brief look. Peter and John were arrested twice, jailed, flogged, and nearly executed by the religious authorities. But the apostles refused to heed the warnings and considered it a privilege to suffer as Jesus had suffered. They were seen as a, not so much outlaw in the political sense, but outlaws in a religious sense. And that's why in the very early days, uh, before we can even call them Christians, they were being hunted down, prosecuted, and even persecuted by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. The apostles were constantly under pressure, being hunted down. You hear what he said. So, but after this encounter, it's really interesting what happens. They head out. They start looking for the rest of the church. They go to find Jesus and Andrew and Bartholomew and their family and the rest of the church, and they find them. And when they're seen, when Peter and John come, you know, they arrive. Everyone, you can imagine, must breathe this sigh of relief, like, oh, my gosh, we didn't think we'd ever see you again. And then Luke records this very powerful prayer that the early church prays. Now think about it. What would you have prayed for at this very moment? If this occurred today, some of us were imprisoned and then released and reunited. How would we have prayed in that very moment? I would imagine it would have been something like this. God, protect us. God, cover us. God, set a force field around us. God, put a dome, a helmet on us. God, put a security unit with us. Because, again, our, the focus of our prayers tend to be about protection, about safety. As Americans, we tend to think health and safety. 
My kid was snowboarding yesterday, and I was pretty concerned for his health and safety. He was off snowboarding by himself. He's eight, and I was concerned for his health and safety. But me and my friend, we couldn't get past this certain area. To, so we just had to, But again, we think health and safety. I would imagine our prayer would have looked different than what they prayed. We probably would have said to Peter and John, Okay, Peter and John, you are not allowed to travel together anymore. We're going to split you up. Peter, if you go out, John, you stay here. John, you can go out, but Peter stays here. Because Peter and John are kind of the big deal leaders in the early church movement. These were major leaders that needed to be protected. And we're going to purchase a fleet of black Escalades. And we're going to have bulletproof windows. And when you guys go out, you won't be touched. You'll be like the Pope Mobile. You seen the Pope Mobile? It's bulletproof. Also, we would have probably told Peter, Peter, no more talking about the resurrection. Just lay low for a little while, man. Every time you say resurrection, you get arrested. Every time you do, it causes a big commotion. If you just talk about something a little more politically correct, Peter, then we could just lay low for a while. Talk about peace. Talk about love. Talk about unity. Don't talk about the resurrection. That's how we think. Just be careful. God, keep us safe. Keep us safe, God. Please don't let us get hurt. But then look at their prayer, the believer's prayer. And when they heard it, they heard the report of Peter and John. They lifted their voices together with, to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, before we ask you anything, God, we just want to declare that we know exactly who you are. We know that you are in total control of everything that happens in this world. Nothing that's happening is beyond your control. Nothing is happening that you're unaware of. You're running the show. They say all that. And then they say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Then he quotes an Old Testament passage predicting that Jesus would be persecuted and mistreated. And he, they say, why did the Gentiles rage? They're praying this Old Testament prayer now, or passage in a prayer. Why did the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Again, this Old Testament prophecy about Jesus Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, and both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. You see, they believed that none of these recent events, Jesus' death, crucifixion, none of these events were spiraling out of God's control. He was still in control. He was still in charge. And then they get to the request. Now look carefully at their request. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Circle that word boldness or underline it or, because this is the key to their request. Now catch what they're asking for. What? You're asking for boldness? Isn't boldness what got you into this mess in the first place? Isn't boldness what got you arrested, landed you guys in jail? Isn't boldness what has created all this tension? I think you guys have boldness covered. But they're praying for boldness. Have we ever prayed a prayer like this? When was the last time we prayed a prayer that resembled this early church prayer for boldness? Is it even in our vocabulary to ask God for boldness? I'm not saying we don't pray bold prayers at all or that we don't pray for people, but sometimes we say, God, would you reach that person they need you. I'm not going to go to them, but God, I pray for them. If you reach them, I'll get to know them. 
if you do the hard work or you send someone else to do the hard work. So we don't typically pray bold prayers, but this is an area that we can grow in. Boldness, not weirdness. And there's a difference. We're going to talk about that next week. Boldness. Do you know why the message of Jesus got out of the 21st or got to the 21st century? It's because the first century Christians had boldness and prayed for more boldness. I'm not convinced that our prayers would have taken the message of Jesus out of that first century because of how self-focused our prayers can be. That's just the first part. Check out the rest of the prayer. He says, you know, boldness. And he says, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. He says, God, stretch out your hand. He's asking God to do something. Perform signs and wonders. That's miracles. Perform signs and wonders through Jesus' name. Have you ever asked for anything like that? No, no. We don't go to that kind of church. Do you know why this verse has such a bad rap? It's because this is weird because Christians today do this in the church service. But this was a request to, to do this outside. God, that you would do something, that we'd be able to go out. They were asking, God, we want to go out of this place. And we want you to demonstrate your power through us. We want you to do something in our lives that would cause this unbelieving world to look at us and say, Wow, that must have been an act of God. Wow, that is amazing. This is a move of God. What if we began to pray our version of this prayer? God, would you use me in my secular world, among my neighbors, among my family, among my friends? Would you use me? I'm willing, God, if you want to do something through, you, through me, displaying your power for your glory. Can you imagine what would happen if we began to pray this type of prayer? And you don't need to stop praying for protection. In fact, you should continue to pray for protection for your kids, for your spouse, you know, or praying for a future spouse, or praying for passing grades. But what would happen if we added elements to our prayer that reflect just this move that we saw in the first century? Two elements. First, ask for boldness. Ask for boldness. What would happen in our church if we consistently asked for more boldness, for courage? God, would you give me courage to speak up? Would you give me courage to, to share? Would you give me courage to get to know, to engage? And then also ask God to demonstrate his power through you. God actually wants to work through us. He wants to advance this movement through our lives. And here's what will happen. I know that if we start praying for these two things, we're going to see God move. And we're going to be more aware because when we start praying, it's human nature and we're Asking God to show us things, we're more aware of what is happening in the world around us. Here's how the story wraps up, verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they had gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then Luke says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now this is a rare thing to see in a church. A church that is one in heart, they're unified. And then he says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one claimed that his possessions were their own, but they had everything in common. Suddenly, along with the boldness, there was this outbreak of generosity, just this extreme generosity among the church. As they became more focused on the outside, God prompted them to share, to serve, to be generous. There was an outbreak amongst them. And I think... 
personally, I think we're a pretty friendly church. I think we genuinely care about people who are outside the church. But the way that we pray is an indication of our heart towards those on the outside. And if we examine our prayers, just the typical daily prayers, it tells us a lot about are we focused inside or outside. The way we pray is a way that we can examine that, and so we need to just pay attention. Let's pray bolder prayers as a church. Let's be about praying bolder prayers. I'd like to invite the band to come forward, and as they come up, would you take out that connection card? On the back you see it says some next steps. If you like, you can respond in some way. One is read Acts 5 through 8. Just continuing to read through the story of the expansion of the early church. The next one is list out what I typically pray for and examine what that reveals. I'd encourage you, write out a list of what you pray for. Take some time this week and say, okay, let me just be honest with myself, Josh. What do I typically pray for? And if you're having a hard time figuring out what that is, ask a family member. Ask your children. Ask your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. Ask someone else. And they may know, well, you typically pray for these things. And that is helpful, just know what I'm typically praying for. And then approach God with bolder prayers this week. Just approach Him with bolder prayers. And I would really love to hear stories. If this sparks in you, just bolder prayers, and God starts working through you in new ways, or you're just, wow, God is really working. As I'm praying this, I see God working. I would love to hear those stories. I'd love to hear the prayers that you're asking God to answer. These crazy requests that, that we know we can't do on our own power and strength, it would be a real encouragement to us to share what God is doing. And then sign up for a growth group on prayer. Maybe that's a step you'd want to take is maybe that's just prompting, hey, you know, I need to think through when I'm praying altogether. We have a growth group, a couple of them that are on prayer. And so if you like, sign up for one of those growth groups. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. You are sovereign, Lord. You're in control of all things. Lord, you're still in charge. Though the world seems like it's spinning out of control, you're still sovereign. You're in charge, God. We declare your sovereignty over our lives, over this world, over this church. You birthed the movement of the church in the first century. You birthed the movement of this church here and now. Four years ago when we launched, Lord, this was... This, is, this was you, God. And so, Lord, as we're a part of it, we pray, God, that you would help us to not play it safe, help us to not just be focused on ourselves, not taking any... We don't want to be a group or a church that's known for the church that plays it safe and takes no risks. We want to be known as a group who, who is boldly proclaiming the message of Jesus, who's boldly getting outside of ourselves, outside of our church walls, outside of the safety net that we have here and interacting outside for the sake of being a witness to those people who do not know you and have no hope without you. God, we pray that you'd use us in that way. Would you even demonstrate your power through us, working amazing things, God, that would cause people to who were once unbelieving completely for them to reconsider the reality of Christ and the difference he can make in a life. God, we just we long to be a part of a move that you're doing right here in our midst, in our generation. God, would you use us here in this city, even to the ends of the earth, God. We love you, God. We thank you for this time together. 
we just <clears throat> we pray that as we give back to you in our offering, God, we pray that you help us to be generous. People who are known as generous people. It's an expression of us getting outside of ourselves. So Lord, we just pray you'd be pleased with our offering this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take out that connection card? And in just a moment, the ushers are going to come.